How about this? Because we've all been there. The student misbehaves again. You've given detentions. You've given different types of consequences. And now you have no choice but to move to some type of suspension. But last time you did an in-school suspension, it was incredibly ineffective. And we all know that out-of-school suspensions just don't work. Hey, everyone. Dr. Jones here with another episode of Seeing to Lead. And you are going to love the amount of helpful information offered by Jonathan Cranford in this episode. You see, Jonathan just wrote a book, The Art of In-School Suspension. We all know it, but we don't like to talk about it that much. That our in-school suspensions that are supposed to act as tier two behavior interventions are not effective the way they're currently being practiced. And if they are being effective, well, we can always improve a little bit. You see, the first step to a successful in-school suspension program is figuring out the structure. And I don't mean just physical structure, which is incredibly important, but digital structure. How does work get back and forth between students and teachers? How does credit work? How do students get prepared to enter back into a classroom where they can be productive instead of disruptive because they're not frustrated and they know how to better deal or manage the emotions that they experience? See, in school, we often see our suspension rooms as disciplinary, consequence-based. And while they are, what we often forget to do is incorporate trauma-informed practices because as Jonathan puts it, they run theirs as trauma-assumed because every student coming in has suffered from some form of trauma. It's incredibly important to remember the nurturing piece required when working with students that we often miss. But that's all explained in Jonathan's book, The Art of In-School Suspension, a discipline program that benefits staff and students. The ripple effects from a positive, productive, effective in-school suspension room are immeasurable. So, you ready to learn more about how to run an effective in-school suspension program? You can find it right here on this episode of Seeing to Lead. If what you hear is valuable, make sure you pick up Jonathan's book and make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. All I ask is for an honest rating and review so that more people like you can hear about these resources. Well, enough from me. Let's hear from Jonathan Cranford and how to improve our in-school suspension rooms so that everyone benefits on Scene to Lead. If you just realize that when it comes to their ability to communicate and your ability to communicate, you are in two completely different galaxies, then the crisis or the, you know, the, the release of energy that they're having isn't so big, it's such a big deal. But that's where people fall apart, right? A kid resists them or, or you know, they try to redirect and the kid mouths off to them or, or gets angry and gives a, an energized response to the teacher. And then the teacher doesn't know what they're going to do or doesn't have their own response already or understand what's happening in that situation, then that's when they fall apart. And that's when things start to go bad in the school suspension room right? or even just a regular classroom, right? Because they're not practicing controlling their emotional response to that student. 
Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Jonathan has seven years experience as a special education teacher at a therapeutic campus for students with emotional disturbance and four more years as an in-school suspension teacher at two middle schools. After discovering how in-school suspension programs are failing to meet the needs of our most at-risk students, Jonathan created a successful in-school suspension program to address the current disciplinary, academic, and restorative requirements of our student populations. After establishing successful ISS programs on two campuses, he made the decision to create a roadmap for others to follow in his latest book, The Art of In-School Suspension. Jonathan now offers professional development and consulting services for schools looking to restructure their in-school suspension programs in an effort to more effectively impact staff and students. I'm happy to welcome Jonathan to the show today because we all know that in-school suspension programs can be a hot topic, whether people think they're needed or not needed, but overall, you don't typically find them run as effectively as they can be. So Jonathan's going to help us with that today. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. And I'd just like to say that you have the uh, manliest Zoom background <laughs> I have ever seen. I believe it's probably you doing some sort of blacksmithing. And uh, I'm impressed. Well, it is. I dab a little bit, but that is not me. That is my youngest son, who's 14 years old doing blacksmithing. He wants to be a blacksmith and a bladesmith. Wow, that is impressive. That's really cool. I get. It's funny you mentioned that. I get more compliments on that background where... And many of them, you know, are around the idea of, wow, that's a manly background. It doesn't get any more manly than blacksmith. But yeah, he's, uh, that's, he was in a shop there. He's got a setup in his backyard that he's actually started taking some orders from people and, and doing his thing. So it's good stuff. Awesome. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. I'll let, I'll, I'll pass the word on to him, (laughs) but, um, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to have you on today because. There's a lot of talk around in-school suspension programs and whether they're needed, whether they're not needed, helpful, not helpful. But like I said, when I, when I first introduced you, they can always be improved. And the fact that we've got somebody on the show that has written a book on how to do it, has found success, created a roadmap. I'm really excited about the information you're going to share with people today. So why don't we just start at the beginning? Why this book? What brought you to writing this book? Well... I had started being an in-school suspension teacher after teaching on a therapeutic campus for about seven years. So uh, that campus was all kids with emotional disturbance, major behavior issues, a lot of escalation, a lot of kids going into crisis. And then after I decided to, I needed a break from that. Um, It's a a tough job. I ended up taking an in-school suspension position on a campus my wife was working at. She's the department chair of math department on that campus. And almost immediately, I started getting feedback from the other teachers after I just began implementing some what I felt were common sense procedures from what I learned in my background. 
And teachers are now approaching me in the hallway saying, hey, my kid had like four zeros in algebra in the grade book, and now they're all made up. How did you get them to do that? Question mark. Or they're saying like, well, you know, my kid got, my student got more done in one day with you than they do all week. What are, what are you doing different? And then they'll also say things to me, this is just year one, mind you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn into more than this, but year one there, they're also saying, well, the kids are having different conversations about ISS. They're saying that their experience is positive, but they don't want to return. And the way they communicate that is they say, well, Mr. Cranford's cool, but ISS sucks. That's the translation for that. I, you know, I start, you know, thinking, well, okay, this is good. This is positive, but we're, we're having an effect. Then year two, my district begins to notice. And there's this day where this, this light bulb goes off in my head because I have about 10 adults in my classroom. And they're adults from my, from my district. And some of them are actually from a neighboring district that we're, we're mentoring on PBIS implementation. One of them is an associate superintendent. And there's as many adults as there are kids in the class. And I'm going, what's, what's happening here? Why am I getting all of this attention all of a sudden? This has never happened in, you know, my, you know, eight years at that point or nine years of teaching at that point. So I start asking questions and I'm asking them, so are there any other schools that are learning ISS the way I am? And they're like, no, nobody's doing exactly what you're doing. And I say, okay. So, well, I'm, you know, I'm in the Houston area where tons of districts, you know, 30 districts just surrounding Houston Independent School District. I'm in one of the surrounding districts. And I know people in all of them. My wife's a teacher. My daughter's a teacher. You know, most of my friends are teachers at the secondary level. So I start asking around. And when you ask people what their in-school suspension room is like, typically you get one or two answers. They're either going to tell you, well, yeah, our in-school suspension room is a joke. They're, you know, the kids just, they want to go in there sometimes. They play, they play on their phones, play on their school-issued laptop. They sleep. They, you know, it's, it's reinforcing negative behaviors. Or they'll tell you, yeah, I think our ISS room is good. But then when you ask follow-up questions like, okay, well, what's your process for getting work to the in-school suspension room? And they're like, oh, we don't worry about work. You know, he just makes them sit in there and, you know, and, and, and they're miserable, which isn't, you know, that's not school either. So uh, then I, you know, then I, I think maybe this is, you know, bigger than, than, than all of this. So I, I do some Googling and, and research online and up. And I noticed that if you... The studies say that not, that in-school suspension is about as ineffective as out-of-school suspension, which is pretty much zero effective, right? It's not it's not helping anyone. I mean, who are we even pretending to help when we suspend children and we send them home, right? So I realize this is a national issue. It's not just in my little area, in my neck of the woods. And that was when the light bulb went off. Like, yo, you need to write down how you do this effectively and what the steps are. And you need to do it in a way that is easily, somebody can easily follow it step by step, kind of like one of those for dummies books. It's kind of like that, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's just shorter, you know, it's, it's a pretty short read and I promise it won't bore you. Um, but that was when I decided to start writing the book. And then this year, um, we just started, decided to begin a consulting firm and teach this because nobody else is doing it. No one else is offering, here is how to train you professionally, how to do this, implement this system, which is not intuitive. You're not going to just take your teaching skills or your administrative skills over and put it into the ISS room. It's, it's, it, it seems like it would be something that's simple, but it's not, right? You would think that it, everybody thinks they can kind of, you know, just all of a sudden implement an in-school suspension room. It sounds easy. 
Um, but it's really not. There really is some thought that goes into it. And it's easy to implement once you know what you're doing, but knowing what you're doing is uh, it's non-intuitive. So that's why I wrote the book to the long way of answering your question. <laughs> no, that's a perfect answer because you answered in such a way that kind of explains the idea of the need. There, There is such a need for this. And you and I spoke before I hit record on this and we were talking about how there are people that say there shouldn't be in school suspension rooms. And that leaves us with all kinds of questions about, okay, so where, you know, when, when assistant principals hear that, a lot of them shudder because then they think about where, where they go with discipline from that in a progressive discipline system. But if, if it's ineffective, like you're saying, then, you know, then it, it doesn't belong in a school because it's not doing any good. It's not, it's not helping teachers. It's not helping students. And the idea that you now offer services, you offer professional development, you offer coaching for it is just, uh, you know, the topping. Because um, once somebody reads the book, it's one thing to read a book, but then to be able to implement it, having somebody guide you is always, always important. Um, now, your book, you say it's a short book, but step by step, it breaks it down as to how we do this. So I does it take it from the realization of, okay, we need an effective in-school suspension room, and then kind of walk people through with a blueprint on how not just to set one up or structure it, because like you said, I, I think that's fairly simple, the, the, the hard, when you're looking at what's hard, but then the piece of how you approach it, what policies and procedures you put in place, how the person approaches the students and works with the students in the room. Can you, can you tell us some of that, what your book goes into? Yeah, sure. That's a lot right there that you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> Take it step by step. It'll be all right. Yeah, it's a, well, I say it's not a terribly long read. It's, it's about 130 pages. And there, you know, we start with defining what an in-school suspension room is and what it is not. Um, and then from there, I talk about the steps to get there. And, and, you know, we start with infrastructure, what I call infrastructure, which is physical layout of the room in order for the kids to be successful, where the teacher sits, are the desks numbered, that helps. And then you've got a digital, uh, what I call digital infrastructure, which is for us a spreadsheet system where we, how we get work to and from uh, in-school suspension. So how are we getting work from our teachers? That's a big, big deal. And our spreadsheet system works really easy because the way we have it set up is as soon as a child gets in-school suspension, then an email goes out to specifically their teachers. I've seen schools where they just send out a, a general email to everyone. Uh, that, hey, there's kids in in-school suspension, come look at this list, and maybe you have some on there, maybe you don't. If it goes out to everyone, it goes out to no one. That is not effective. That's a big mistake. It just needs to be targeted to, you know, just send it to their specific schedule if they're, if they're in ISS. And uh, and then it connects in that email, there is a link to a, uh, to a Google Doc, which is just a Google spreadsheet. And uh, it's broken down by grade level, by subject. And so where you see the kid's name, you find their, uh, their subject. If you're the math teacher, you put what the math assignment is for that day, uh, right there. Um, if you need to send work, then there's a process for that. Um, but that's kind of the, 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 the infrastructure that needs to be there before we can do anything else. Right. Uh, and then I also from my own, uh, the, the ISS teacher has their own personal sheet where they're tracking all kinds of stuff too. So it's another spreadsheet where, uh, I'm, Looking at first, it starts out as like a seating chart, uh, and that's why all the desks are numbered. So it's just easy to know who is where at all times and, and, and where you're documenting. 
And then it goes to a where I'm tracking work, which is the next uh, most important thing. We're actually tracking assignments uh, all day long and who's on, you know, who's doing what. And then the last is where we're tracking discipline. So if we're having issues in there, we're going to document all of that as well. Uh, so that's the main digital and physical infrastructure. And it breaks that down pretty well. And then from there, you're going to go on to actual structure. What are your rules and procedures? What is your procedure for going to the restroom? What is your procedure for going to lunch? All of that needs to be uh, in place before you start the day. And then what we could do is we go into what I call winning the morning. And that's where you go over what your rules and expectations are for the day. And you tell them what the structure is so that there are no surprises. You tell them how you're going to respond to everything. And uh, if you can set the tone right at the beginning of the day and make sure that everybody knows what's going on, you tend to have to deal with a lot less behaviors. It's also what we call trauma-informed in-school suspension because there's no surprises. They know what is going to be expected of them. They know exactly what's going to happen at all times. And they know when how you're going to respond. They also they know when your restroom breaks are. That All of that stuff is, is handled. It's, it's front-loaded, so they understand it. And then also, you know, I mentioned we track, we track work on our spreadsheet. One of the reasons why I do this, because I have kids on different subjects all day long, and that's by design. I give them the choice to choose where they want to start. As long as I can get work from the teachers, uh, one kid wants to start on ELA, we start them on ELA. One kid wants to start on math, start them with, on math. It gives them some choice, right? So they don't feel helpless. So they can start working and build some momentum right at the beginning of the day, right at first period, as soon as we've gone over rules and expectations. So those two things in combination, we call trauma-informed. Right? Those are two foundations of the, the trauma-informed in-school suspension that we offer. We call it trauma-assumed in-school suspension because we know they're showing up with trauma, um, pretty much all of them. So, uh, but that's, you know, that, that's why it's, it's uh, implemented that way. People always ask why. Why do you not just have first period is math, second period is... ELA, third period is science. We don't do it that way. We allow them, we tell them for content first. So we're going to knock out our, our math, social science, ELA first, but you get to pick where you want to start. Uh, then we do electives last. Uh, and then also, um, you know, within that, how you asked me how I'm engaging with students throughout the day. Um, I am always looking to, for opportunities to work one-to-one. And that's the beauty of in-school suspension is that you get an eternity with your learners as compared to a regular classroom teacher. And that's where all of the cool stuff happens. All of the academic interventions, all of the uh, one-to-one restorative interventions, all of that happens one-to-one because you have the time if you make it. And that is uh, the real beauty of the work is getting to work, getting to spend so much time. You, you know, a regular classroom teacher, 120 or 150 kids throughout the day, they've got like 25 uh, kids at a time for 45 minutes. If a kid gets, you know, an hour of one-to-one time with a teacher all school year, that is a miracle. I, I've spent three hours at a time with my learners and we backfill deficits uh, that they didn't learn in sixth grade and in fifth grade. We will uh, make sure all those zeros are caught up. We give them momentum going back into the classroom so that they're able to connect and engage uh, more efficiently with their, with their class, regular classroom teacher. That's. I mean, all of that, you, you said, I said a lot. There's a whole bunch in that. And, and one of the things, first of all, I really like the trauma assumed piece where you, you know, there's no secrets, there's no surprises and they get choice. So you, you offer them maximum freedom with expectations, shared expectations in an environment where they don't typically or necessarily want to be because they're there for a negative reason. 
Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So, my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. But something that really stood out to me, I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about it, are the intervention pieces, where you talk about academic interventions and you talk about restorative interventions. Now, as the in-school suspension teacher, are you responsible for both of those? Do you ever have teachers come in to help with academics? Do you ever have counselors come in to help with, with the social-emotional piece? They're always welcome to. If your school is uh, integrating in-school suspension well, then they will. It, t- it tends to be, you know, a teacher by teacher. Some teachers will. They're uh, depending on how invested they are in the student. Uh, counselors haven't jumped on board doing it in the ISS room. And what I do is a little bit different than that. Well, it's not that much different. I do uh, behavior reflection, uh, those sorts of things. And we tend to push it towards the end of the day. We'll also do restorative circles sometimes if there's a, if there's a big enough group, if it's small enough, I like to do more of a one-on-one restore, uh, behavior reflection. But uh, the academic intervention is typically, it's typically done by myself. I'm the one in there all day. So, uh, and I'm looking for opportunities to do it. So I mentioned I spent three hours with a kid. I'll give you an example of something that happens quite often. It happens every year. I'm not a math teacher, but I get to relearn Pythagorean theorem every year because our seventh graders have to learn it. And this is what happens all the time is I'll have a kid who gets in there and, you know, Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. We, we all remember that. So we're going through how to do that. And then all of a sudden... We'll get to that problem where they give you A squared and C squared, but not B squared. So now you have a two-step equation, right? Well, the kid doesn't know how to do two-step equations. So now we have to go and teach that to them. So we're going back a little bit and teaching that. And then in the course of that, you find out that maybe they don't know how to divide decimals. And so then we go back and we, we work on that skill. So we can all oftentimes work backwards. Even if I don't have information from the teacher, I'm always asking for information, info from the teachers. Saying like, you know, if you've got some deficits, you know, this kid needs work, send it. They, they, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but I can always find them uh, if I'm looking, you know, and then math is not my strength necessarily, but it's easy for us to go back and, and uh, fill in those gaps if we're looking. Perfect. Because I mean, how often do we talk about students, their behavior is a direct result of how frustrated or engaged they are or how disengaged they are. And so the idea that, you know, you're, and I'm going to say this wrong because it's clunky, but let me try and get this idea out. The idea that they have the feeling that you care because you do. So now they have that caring and trusting adult that's actually working with them or on their side, for lack of a better term, that they then feel more comfortable. They're engaged in what they're doing. And and you had talked about before we hit record how successful you were 
with getting students to do their work. And the idea that, you know, they, they didn't like in school. They didn't go back to in school if they could help it, but they, they liked working with you. And I just think the importance of highlighting that productive type of relationship is super important. How do you, it, it brings me to the idea of the academics, because sometimes when you have any type of different room where students are doing work, sometimes the teachers, if that student does catch up because that student's behind the eight ball, with the teacher because of behaviors that have gone on in the past. Sometimes there's the question of, did the student do the work all by themselves? Do they get full credit? How do you navigate those often choppy waters? Hasn't been much of an issue. We have grading guidelines in our district. So uh, they tend to get uh, several chances to get uh, non-completed work in. Um, I think most districts are going to that. Uh, If there is, though, though, what I have to be careful is all, if I see 30s, or 20s in their, uh, in their grade book through their, you know, we use Schoology. Uh, some people use Google Classroom, but I can, a lot of times I can see, I'll, I'll have to, I want to make those up and, you know, see if we can get a better grade. And we call that grade repair. It's another thing that happens in there. But I have to ask the teacher sometimes because grading guidelines may not allow for it uh, necessarily. But if it's something that is not going to be allowed, it, it, then we won't, you know, we won't bother with it. But like, what you were saying earlier is you thought it was clunky. I, it sounded right, but uh, what we call, I call it nurturing what you were saying, what you were referring to, which is, you know, you set the expectation and the boundaries and you say, look, this is what we're going to accept in here, what we're not going to accept. We're not going to let you fall short of this, but there is so much willingness and desire to help you achieve something today that you're not going to care about those strict boundaries. And that's what, that's all that is really. That, that does build that feeling of, oh, somebody actually cares and, it's something that, you know, some, it took me a long time to learn myself what nurturing was, right? That that's, that's really what it boils down to. You know, as parents, sometimes we don't understand it. You know, we haven't encapsulated it. Somebody should, should tell us. It should be a sign that is, uh, that is on, you know, everywhere reminding parents like, hey, this is what nurturing is. And this is, and nurturing is your job. It's our job as teachers as well, right? So that is what we're looking for uh, in, in an ISS room or any, in uh, any classroom, really, we're looking for that nurturing piece. So now it's so good that you talk about that nurturing piece because oftentimes working with students and and your background led to this more than teachers that haven't worked in behavioral programs and so forth. But that mindset or mentality when you're working with those students, how do you help teachers reach that? Like you you give this professional development, you consult. You help people set up these ISS rooms, these successful ISS rooms, or improve what they have. How do you work with them on that mindset and that mentality piece where it's not it's not the the same old, same old, but it's also not, oh, just sit here and do whatever. Right. That's the major issue with in-school suspension rooms, right? That's why I knew what those issues before I even set foot in an in-school suspension room because I was a teacher. So you'll, you know, either you've got the teacher who doesn't who's given up and they're just letting the kids do whatever, or they're really strict and it's basically a room where kids are sitting there doing time, right? And both of those are 100% loss of instruction. So we can't, that can't happen, right? That just can't happen. That helps nobody. That affects the climate of the school. It hurts the teachers. It hurts everybody. So what first we start, we start by talking about that. We, we express, you know, what the in-school suspension room is, what the potential of it is, how it really is the only tier two behavior intervention that your campus has. 
But I often tell people that if you don't have a tier two behavior intervention, right, then you have, you're just playing is what you're doing. Because the kids are going to catch on pretty quick that uh, while they gave me OSS, where I went home and hung out and watched Netflix all day and, and played and played PlayStation, or they gave me in-school suspension where I listened to music and scrolled social media on my school-issued laptop or I watched Marvel movies on my phone. Neither of those is a tier two intervention. Neither of those is an intervention, period, right? So we have to train them to be that intervention because of the ripple effect that that's going to have on the entire campus. Mindset stuff is really cool. We get into that what we call the art. If you get into the later chapter, uh, the last chapter, I guess, we call the art of in-school suspension. It really is more about your ability to communicate and you practicing this art every day. There's a lot of cool things about in-school suspension, right? Which are, you know, you don't have to worry about grades, taking grades home, grading papers, that sort of thing. Everything you're doing is in the room. You're not taking a lot home with you unless, unless it's maybe the stress. You're not worried about entering grades at semester, you know, that big rush that everybody has to do. It's always a big hassle. Grade books, all those things, all those other things you have to manage. You rarely have to deal with parents. So there's some some major perks to the position, but you need to be there, you know, in when you're there, you need to be 100%, right? So we teach them, this is a, uh, this is a practice. You have to, um, that you get to do, right? You actually get to practice not having an emotional response when a student is acting out, you know, maybe they're cursing at you, maybe they're in crisis, right? You get to actually practice controlling yourself, controlling your emotions. You get to practice having a non-energized response, what we call it, to that. You get to practice that. So we start thinking mindset right there, right? Like that is something that is a very valuable tool to have as an adult that you can take into your relationships with other adults, with your spouse, right? You need to be able to control the energy of your response and your emotions. It's easy to practice on kids, right? Because they're kids. So, um, you know, when if you just realize that when it comes to their ability to communicate and your ability to communicate, you are in two completely different galaxies, then the crisis or the, you know, the, the release of energy that they're having isn't so big, it's such a big deal. But that's where people fall apart, right? A kid resists them or, or you know, they try to redirect and the kid mouths off to them or, or gets angry and gives a, an energized response to the teacher. And then the teacher doesn't know what they're going to do or doesn't have their own response already or understand what's happening in that situation, then that's when they fall apart. And that's when things start to go bad in the school suspension room, right? Or even just a regular classroom, right? Because they're not practicing, um, they're not practicing controlling their emotional response to that student. Um, and, uh, so that's one part of it right there. Um, there are some other steps, you know, we have a whole redirection strategy, um, a whole ladder to help them make sure that they know how do they're going to respond to every situation that's ever happened? Because I've already seen it all. So the rules cover a lot. And then when something's going to happen, we already show them how they're going to respond. There's not, um, it's broken down pretty well. So all you have to do is practice a little bit. Little bit. Yeah, I th- what else? I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what else we can go into there. That's, that's all right. I, you know, when I think about, when I think about this book and I think about some of the things you're talking about all the way to the last chapter of the art of ISS, where you're talking about mindset and mentality and how you work with people with that and give them guidance on that. Such a, this is such a huge topic. You mentioned ripple effect because ISS rooms do have a major ripple effect on the school, whether they're working well or not, and whether you have one or not. What types of ripple effects do you see with a successful ISS program? Teacher retention, a big deal. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal, right? Having good teachers stay stay in the profession, um, that's a fairly important ripple effect, I would say. 
Let's look at it this way. I'll give you to you from a teacher perspective and an ad perspective. From a teacher perspective, you have some behaviors in your classroom. You're trying. You know, you might be a new teacher. You might have experience. You've got your, your strategies. You're implementing those and something's not working because that happens in every class at some point during the year. And maybe you have persistent negative behaviors happening and you've gone through all the steps that you're going to take. And now you've got to a point where I need to send a write-up. I need to send an office referral, whatever you guys call it. So you, go, so you have to call a parent first. Well, at least most districts, that's, that's what my understanding is. You have to contact, you have to do parent contact first, then you send the referral. That's already a lot of work right there that you've implemented. And now, so the kid goes and then they come back. And if they come back um, from a non-functioning ISS room, now they have come back to the classroom, not only three days behind in one to three days behind in instruction, but also possibly emboldened in their behaviors because they had a good time in ISS or, uh, you know, they, they liked going there more than they like going to that Spanish class that they hate or even your class just depends on, you know, what, what, what that behavior served them and how, how that, how that ISS room served them. Sorry. So that's, that's how the teacher sees it if it's, if it's not effective. And that's very frustrating, right? People, people get sick of that because they feel like if you have a really rough class, you've got five or six of those kind of kids in there, which happens very often nowadays. Sometimes it gets to the point where there are days you can't teach. That's extraordinarily frustrating and demoralizing. Uh, and I've seen that. And now uh, from the admin perspective, you've got, what, a billion things going on uh, as, an, as an administrator? Uh, or even as an assistant administrator, where you know you've got to, all these things you have to do, you have to uh, you have to do walkthroughs in classrooms. You have to worry about PBIS implementation, whatever uh, whatever projects or subjects that you're over. You have to go in and uh, have so many uh, so many meetings per teacher for all the teachers that you're over just to do to do those uh, evaluations, right? Because you have to have like the pre assessment, you have to do the the, the actual walkthroughs. Um, you have to do the actual evaluation day. You have so many, they have a post assessment. So if you multiply that times 20 teachers, you know, you're over a hundred different little meetings or visits that you have to do. It's probably more than you have days in the school year. And now you've got behaviors also thrown in there, which are going to come at you like every day almost, you know, when the first week of school, they start racking up. It's, you know, it's not your top concern, but it's something you have to deal with. And now you, if you don't have a tier two intervention, you're, you say you have OSS and ISS. Neither one of which are effective uh, if the ISS room isn't effective. And then so you just, you know, you, you just go and, and do what you've always done, which is assign one or the other. The teachers are getting frustrated, especially if, you know, the, the kid comes back emboldened from ISS. They're not going to blame me. They're going to blame, blame the ISS teacher, right? They're, they're going to start blaming the admin because they're like, why don't you guys have something that you can help us with? They should ideally blame the ISS teacher. They should blame me. And my campus, I don't get blamed because I do a good job, but but that's where the blame should be, right? But it's, it's, it's a structural issue because we haven't had really solid training of implementation of this type of system. Uh, uh, you know, uh, effective ISS room or a trauma-informed ISS room, whatever you want to call it, it hasn't been effective, hasn't worked. So now you've got, now you've got a, a tension between the admin and the teachers because they, they don't have any power to help to do anything better for the teacher. I've seen admin where they're like, hey, the best way I can support you is I'll let you pick. You know, you tell me what you want me to do with the kid. You know, I'll give him ISS, I'll give him OSS. Just you tell me. I've got so much going on and nothing we've done has worked. Um, and I've tried parent contact and the parents not supportive. So like, you just tell me what you want and that's the best I can. And that happens quite often. You need a tier two intervention so you can stop playing school. 
because otherwise we're just playing. I like the way you put that. And that's what your book, The Art of In-School Suspension, a discipline program that benefits staff and students, discusses. And clearly that's the ripple effect. It's right there in the title, how it benefits everybody involved. So you're not, and again, I like the way you put this, just playing school. You know, Jonathan, we're, we're getting to the end of the podcast here. And I ask the, I ask guests the same two questions on every episode. And I'm interested in hearing what your answers are. And the, the first one of those is if you were an educator, who, not what would you be? I would still be me, <laughs> I think. That's a good um, start. I, I would have less self-knowledge because the kids have taught me so much. And um, I've learned through this job what my core values are. And that is integrity, humility, and gratitude. And the way that works in in-school suspension, the integrity part is... Um, I always just call it do the next right thing. So I'm sitting there in that room and I can get away with, you know, I mean, the, the bar for in-school suspension is, is is fairly low anywhere you go. So I could get away with just, you know, sitting there and kind of make, keeping them quiet all day. But the next right thing to do is work with that kid who seems to be struggling or has just been staring at question five for the last 15 minutes, right? Even if they don't raise their hand, we call that the invisible hand in in-school suspension, right? You look for those signs that the kid's not going to ask for help. You just go and bring them to your desk and help them. So integrity, do the next right thing. Humility is comes with that redirection strategy. You know, they're going to maybe say insulting things to be hostile toward you. Sometimes you can't take that personally. That is just communication. Their behavior is just communicating frustration or anxiety. They don't, they're not good at communicating that. Adults aren't either. So, you know, I mean, it's not something to take personally. So being humble, you know, you get to work on that every day. And the gratitude is I get to work with these kids every day. I get so much one-on-one time. I get to practice you know, not having an emotional response to students. I get to practice making myself do the right thing over and over and over again. That's the, uh, that's, that's, you know, the best thing that I've learned from these kids and this position. And so obviously keeping that in mind and some of the other things you've said, what's the most important piece of advice you would give to leaders as they work to better support, engage, and empower those they serve? You got to take care of yourself. Um, I know self-care is probably one of the most annoying topics right now in education, but let me tell you a quick little story. I got into a car accident one time. The guy rear-ended me uh, in in Interloop, Houston. And it wasn't like a real bad car. I just felt myself lurch forward. I looked behind me and I see like a a car rolling backwards with the tent, uh, with the the hood just tented up. And uh, and so, you know, but I had been working out, getting, you know, plenty of exercise. I've been eating right and I've been getting plenty of sleep. So I get out of my car and my first thing is I'm like, hey man, are you okay? And, and you know, I look at it, I have a small dent. You know, he has a, a tented hood. <laughs> I was driving a truck at the time. And I'm like, you know what, I man, don't even worry about it. I was just in a good place and it was like, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. You know, it's going to make me a little bit late for my appointment. But you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not tripping because I'm in a good place. And, you know, in education... Our job is to have, or or admin even, administration, we have to have a thousand perfect interactions every day. You can't do that if you're, you know, you're, you have a poor diet, you're not getting enough sleep, you're anxious, you know, you're probably not exercising enough, all of those things. You got to figure out a way to take care of yourself, but you can't just preach about it. You actually have to do it. Absolute perfect answer. I can't think of a better way to wrap up the idea of improving your in-school suspension program so that students can benefit and teachers can benefit and you know, as a result, the whole community benefits. So, you know, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'll definitely link up your book. 
and, uh, you know, let people know in the show notes how they can get in touch with you for the professional development services and, and coaching that you're offering around this important topic. Thank you. And I really appreciate you having me again. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week.